Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. As we continue to learn wisdom from the preacher, wisdom from Solomon, we're going to look at verse, uh, the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. So I'll read verses 1 through 16 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. The toil of rivalry. So a lot of depressing things in these verses, but we'll go through it nonetheless. Verse 1. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother. But yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he, has, he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. And those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, great God, it seems so often there is much sadness and sorrow in this world. It seems as if you are not working. It seems that there is much sin that is an evil that occurs in this world, and it brings much pain, much sorrow, and makes us very perplexed with how things are unfolding. But we're thankful, oh God, that you teach us that there is much misery in this world, especially the misery that sin brings. We're also thankful, O oh God, that you walk with your people, that you save us from our sins, but you walk with us in this life through the misery that we endure. And we're thankful, O oh God, that the misery is but a momentary light affliction and does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits your people. So thank you, O oh God, for this reality. Thank you that there is a time for everything under heaven, and there is a time for our toil, there is a time for our misery to end. When Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. Thank you, O God, for this truth. Thank you, O God, for your nearness. Thank you, O God, that you give us comfort when we are oppressed. Thank you, O God, that you are a close friend when all others fail us. And thank you, O God, that you're the one who knows all of our needs, the one who knows us when everyone forgets us. Thank you that you are this God. And as we see and understand how the world works, May we recognize that you are the one who moves all things for our good and for your glory. Be pleased to save sinners this day. Be pleased to strengthen saints this day. 
And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's no surprise that we live in a time when we are more connected than ever with the invention of the internet, with the development of various social media platforms. But the sad thing is, even though we are more connected, it seems that we are less social. Rather than interacting in person, rather than being able to read facial expressions, body language, we simply communicate via text message and by way of, of social media. The sad thing is the result has been more loneliness and more anxiety in this world. And COVID and the lockdowns from COVID have only exacerbated that very problem. They've only made that thing much worse. Because the reality is loneliness was a problem even before the age of the internet. The problem has been around even before social media. Because as the preacher says, there is nothing new under the sun. Loneliness occurred at the time of Solomon, just as it occurs at our time as well. And loneliness really is a perplexing thing, isn't it? Why is it that people are alone? And remember, that's the point of the book, the perplexing nature of life that we see under the sun, the sadness of life that we see under the sun, the recognition there is sin and misery in this world. So how is it that we deal with these very uh, tensions? How is it that we deal with these inconsistencies? And remember, Solomon isn't seeking to resolve them. They are still there, but he wants to point our attention somewhere else where we find true meaning in this world. Remember, the main motto is vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or enigma of enigmas. Things are absurd, and it doesn't make sense in this world. So what profit is there if men, when men toil under this sun? And so we're really in the section that's still dealing with the problem of time, the tyranny of time. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time of war and a time of peace, a time of love and a time of hate, a time to be born, a time to die. And so if there's a time for everything, what about injustice? Why is there wickedness in the gates? What about oppression? What about rivalry? What about loneliness? What about government if there's a time for everything? And so we see really four problems in these verses, three to four problems in chapter four. But perhaps the one thread to unite it all is the problem of rivalry, the problem of envy, the problem of hatred and wanting to be better than somebody else, the problem of seeing one's own inadequacy and wanting to remedy that very thing based on what other people have to say. Because let's be honest, we compare ourselves with what everybody does around us. We look at their lives, we see what they're doing, we see how they're flourishing or not, and we make judgments based on those observations that we uh, we make. And sadly, it is rivalry, uh, or or rivalry is one of the, the problems or one of the motives that leads to oppression and loneliness in this world. People hate other people doing good. People uh, hate other people flourishing, and unfortunately, other humans oppress other human beings. And unfortunately, even when people wish to do so-called good, that motive is always tainted with envy and tainted with rivalry and tainted with pride. And so in Ecclesiastes 4, the preacher sees the sorrow that rivalry and envy bring. He sees the sadness that envy and hatred and toil bring. 
he sees the sadness that sin brings to this world. But the key themes are rivalry and oppression as we go through these verses. And so we'll look at these verses under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see no comfort for the oppressed, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we'll see no companion for the selfish, verses 4 through 12. And then lastly, no praise for the wise, verses 13 through 16. So no comfort for the oppressed, no companion for the selfish, and no praise for the wise. So let's first look at no comfort for the oppressed in verses 1 through 3. Again, the context is he's considering injustice in chapter 3, verse 16. So he returns again to consider all the oppression that is under the sun, all the impression that is in this world. Now, that word oppression is a loaded term in our modern context, isn't it? With everything that is going on with racial injustice, not saying there, race, uh, there can't be racism, racism is bad, but it's a very loaded term in our modern context. And really, when we understand it in its narrow uh, assessment, really has to do with people in power crushing the pe peasants, people in power crushing the little guy, which we saw at the gates in verse 16, in the place of judgment. You think the place where there should be right and wrong, where the place where righteousness is upheld, instead there is wickedness in that place. There's wickedness in the courts. There's wickedness in the place where there ought to be justice and judgment. So oppression is a loaded term, but it's also an important term, and we shouldn't shy away from that term just because people hijack it in our modern time, because there are many people in this world who are legitimately and absolutely oppressed. And the oppression to it, even though it has that narrow sense, can be broadened out to other things. And perhaps that's what he's referring to here. We've seen the narrow definition with the courts, but perhaps it spreads to all facets of life. Oppression spreads far and wide. It occurs in the abuse of the legal system, but also in the abuse of children by their parents. And that's just one spec. That's just one example. But there's a lot of sadness that occurs in this world that we don't even see happening, do we? There's a lot of wickedness that occurs in this world that we do not see occurring, do we? Especially children. The way that children are treated around the world, that children are treated by their parents even. Wickedness, sadness, misery, misery, vanity of vanities under this sun. There is injustice in this world. And we ought to hate that very thing. We ought to hate injustice in this world, dear brethren, because it is a wretched and awful thing, especially when children are hurt and oppressed by their own parents. So it is spreading out further than just that very thing. He says in verse 1, then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Solomon in the Proverbs also mentions oppression and how, that, how God sees such things. Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, and he who honors him has mercy on the needy. You don't have to turn there. You can look at these after, but Proverbs 14, 31. And then Proverbs 22, 16. He says, he who oppresses the poor increases his riches. He who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. And then 28.3, he says, a poor man who oppresses the poor. That's an interesting sight, isn't it? You mean poor people can oppress poor people? 
is like dry, a driving rain which leaves no food. So there is much misery in this world and oppression that is done under the sun. And remember, the preacher, Kohelet, Solomon, is the one who's observing. He's making reflection. He's ma- seeing what's going on in the world and making, uh, making assessments based on that, on what he sees. And so he sees, look, verse 1, the tears of the oppressed, for they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. It seems that power, the powerful ones are prevailing. Ones who are crying have no comfort for their tears. Brethren, that happens. Persons around the world cry with no comfort. Cry with no encouragement. Cry with no one to help them in this world. And again, especially children the way in which they are exploited around the world, the way in which they are treated improperly around the world, the way in which they are sold around the world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. And he repeats again, but they have no comforter. And so... He makes a better than statement. He's got four better than statements in the chapter four. And the first one is in verse three. But notice verse two. It'll be better to be dead. This is very encouraging, isn't it? On a Sunday afternoon. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead. More than the living who are still alive. There is peace in dying, isn't there? Especially peace in dying in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not die, if you do not you die outside the Lord Jesus Christ, there is going to be much sadness and pain and suffering and legitimate punishment from God Almighty forever. But again, consider from our perspective, as we see someone who has passed, they're just lying there, aren't they? When we see the, when we see the body of the deceased, they seem quite peaceful. And their toil, based on how they lived or what they had to endure or what they saw under the sun, seems to have stopped. And the living, while the living still have to suffer with these enigmas that don't make any sense, still have to wrestle with these trials and problems, not just personally, but globally, and the misery of sin in this world. We have to wrestle with all of those very things. It would be better to be dead. Now, I'm not promoting suicide. He is not promoting suicide but vividly describes the oppression, vanity, and toil that occurs in this world. And believer and unbeliever experience pain and sorrow and suffering, don't they? Many believers around the world are oppressed. Many unbelievers around the world are oppressed. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And even Job himself, he kind of, or it's similar to what is said in verse 3. Yet even better than dying, better than both, is he who has never existed. He who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. It would be better to be unborn. It would have been better not to have come into existence. What a bitter assessment. Brother, we need to appreciate that tension, don't we? And appreciate that God is real with us. There is much anxiety and loneliness in the world. But atheism cannot explain it. 
Other religions can barely explain it. Only the scriptures can explain it. I know doctrine of sin is very depressing, but it's important. A robust understanding of why the world is the way it is, but also understanding there is a God who moves all things for his specific purpose. Job, in Job 3, verse 3, and when he, he curses the day that he was born, even that righteous man, Job, who, was, who shun, fears the Lord and shuns evil, he says in Job 3, verse 3, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. The reason being, there is much sadness in the world who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. The universal sadness that is recognized in this world. There is no comfort for the oppressed. But brethren, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ and know who the God of heaven and earth is, is there not comfort from the God of heaven in times of oppression and sadness and sorrow? It doesn't take away the discomfort, does it? That's one thing I appreciate about this book. He just puts the problems side by side, the vanity of something, but the good thing about that very thing which we'll see when we get to verse four. But God says, this is how the world works, how the whole world works. In the New Testament, God says, in this world, we will have tribulation. But Jesus says, fear not, for I have overcome this very thing. The reality is the discomforts and the sufferings and the sorrows and the misery that we endure will end. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. We know that it shall end misery, sadness, sorrow, tears, but God also gives us comfort as we endure misery, sadness, sorrow, and tears. We have a dear and comforting friend who is with us. And I love the language descri describing both the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When we consider the missions of the persons of the Trinity, that is what the persons of the Trinity do outside themselves when it comes to salvation. We certainly see in John 14, 16, Jesus says that another comforter shall come. And the implication is that he is that first comforter. He is that paraclete. He is that advocate for his people. The ones who are oppressed in court, they have no one who stands as their lawyer, no one who stands for them and pleads their case. That's what the Lord Jesus does. He is our advocate with the Father, according to 1 John chapter 2. But in John 16, as Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to have tribulation. I'm going to be gone. It's going to be, you know, uh, I, I go to my Father. He says, in verse 16, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he, that is the spirit may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And he says also in 16, as he speaks about the spirit again, just after he talks about being rejected. When the helper comes, verse 20, sorry, verse 15, chapter 20, or chapter, 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you, whom the father, the spirit of truth proceeds from the father, 
he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Then verse five, but now I go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The helper is meant to be a help to the people of God. And if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we also have the advocate at the right hand of God, the Father. First John 2. Little children, do not sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Brethren, that ought to give you comfort and encouragement in this world that you both have the Holy Spirit, that you have the Lord Jesus Christ who is our advocate, and that you know the Father, that you know God because of his mercy towards us. And whatever suffering you endure, God will give you comfort when other people do not find comfort. So that is no comfort for the oppressed. Let's then look secondly at no companion for the selfish, verses 4 through 12. And this is where we see that rivalry aspect come up, come about again. Why is it that, other pe- that people oppress other people? Well, they hate them, they envy them, they despise them. In any case, verse 4 proper, we see, or the discussion of rivalry proper in verse 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Labor is good, isn't it? God says it's a God-given, he gives us good labor in this world that God gives. But labor can be abused in many ways. One of those abuses is rivalry, idleness, and covetousness, which we see in the rest of the section. But rivalry is a motive that people have for engaging in work. That's probably what that means, though, the way the language, it's difficult Hebrew, but what it means, a skillful, uh, skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. He sees what his neighbor has. He wants to one-up up, uh, one, uh, one him. He wants to do better than him. He wants to grow in his ability. He wants to do better than that person. Rivalry so often pervades our motivations. Even for the people of God, even for good things in this world, we often do it because we want to outshine other people, right? We all did know because most people, when they go to seminary, they're all doing it because they just want to serve the Lord, right? They're not thinking, am I smarter than that guy? Am I a better preacher than this dude? Nobody thinks that, right? At seminary, nobody does that. When everybody walks into the gym, they're not like, mm, no, I'm just going to do it and not care what anybody else says. Not look at what that guy's doing and this guy's doing and that person's doing. Nobody does that, right? What about Facebook? Isn't Facebook just a big rivalry thing that everybody looks at what other people are doing or TikTok or whatever the thing is today? I just made myself old because I don't use TikTok, but that's okay. But TikTok, you know, all these various social media platforms, it's based on what other people do. Isn't that sad? No wonder there's so much anxiety in the world. Before, you just saw what your neighbor had. Now you see what everybody's got, right? You see what everybody's doing. No wonder people are lonely. No wonder people are anxious. No wonder people are struggling. 
they can't handle all the things that people are doing. Brethren, we weren't meant to know so many things all at once. We just weren't. And then let alone we have sin and, you know, envy and rivalry and we want what they got. We do things for selfish ambitions and for much rivalry, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought not to, dear brethren, but we must confess that that is a reason why people do certain things. I saw for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the end. Well, then we have the problem of idleness. Problems just abound. Rivalry, idleness. I mean, we take every good thing and we make it a bad God. And so the foolish person is one who is prone to extremes. And so perhaps in this context, he hears what the preacher says, there's rivalry. And the foolish person says, well, I'm not going to do anything. So I avoid engaging in rivalry by avoid engaging in envy. I'm just going to fold my hands. Verse five, the fool folds his hands. Well, you can't fold your hands and do nothing because then you're going to starve yourself to death. And the image here is one of self-cannibalism and consumes his own flesh. God has made us to work. God especially has made men to work. You know when men engage in a lot of sin? When they do not work, when they're idle. We're not supposed to just sit there and do nothing all the time. We are meant to have the God-given task that he's given to us, for it is good. We're not meant to be lazy. Doesn't he say to the ant in Proverbs 6, or say to the, uh, the, the sluggard, look at the ant. The ant is your example on how you live. The ant is your example on how to work hard. Man is meant to work hard, not to just, okay, even though there's rivalry, we're not meant to just do nothing. We need to nuance a little bit here. And so he gives this second better than statement. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. It is better still to work, but it's better to have a little bit, one handful, a handful with quietness, a handful with tranquility, rather than both hands full together with striving after nothing. He's going to illustrate that in verse 7. But also in Ecclesiastes 2, the vanity of pleasure. He worked, he worked, and worked, and he heaped up all these things. He built a vineyard, he built houses, he had all these riches, all the riches that anybody could want. It is vanity and striving after wind. But again, there is that juxtaposition, that side by side. But God does give us good things. We're not meant to abuse them, but... In any case, Ecclesiastes 2 highlights the vanity of pursuing these things for themselves. And so we got a lot of problems with work here. Rivalry, idleness, but then also covetousness. Verse 7, man, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Then I returned, verse 7, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. Can you get the idea of what makes one full? And there is this covetous workaholic who thinks it's the things of this world that make his life full. But that is not what brings goodness. That's not what brings rest. That's not what brings 
satisfactions, the things that God has indicated that bring us rest and satisfaction. And it is better to share it with somebody else than by one's self. This one, no wife, probably that's what companion means. No children, no siblings. We could even say no friends. Riches are his satisfaction. But the sad thing is his eye is never satisfied with the riches. His labor never ends. This is vanity. But he never asks. He never ponders to stop and consider, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? For whom do I toil and work for nothing? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. What benefit is there in the things of this world if we cannot share it with another? And it's not just talking about spouses, but friends, people who are alone, people who don't do things with other people. Remember traveling some years ago with my friends. It was after high school. We traveled around. I had gone to London. Uh, London was our last stop. And I was splitting off. I was going to go alone to make my way home by myself. So I was alone traveling. And we came to London. I came to saw some of the sites. I had some you know, time there. And I got there and I realized this is lame because I'm by myself. And the sad part was, is because I had gone to London a couple of years ago with my parents and it was great and it was wonderful with people. But I was by myself. It just is not the same, is it? It's better to share it with other people. And has not God given us good friends, good people, good, you know, churches, the family of God, to enjoy such things because they really are a blessing. Verses 9 through 12, the blessings of companionship. So he tells us, you know, rivalry, idleness, covetousness, but the value of a friend. And this is the third of the four better than sayings. We're going to have a quiz after, but this is the third of the four better than sayings. Two are better than one. Humans were not made to live in isolation. And that is a gift from God, isn't it? Genesis 2:18. He looked upon the man and it was not good that he was alone. So he made Eve the companion for him. We're not meant to be so disconnected from everybody. We're not meant to be so separate from everybody. We are supposed to see each other's faces, interact with one another, help one another. Yeah, phones can help with that, but as people said, that Zoom thing has only ever worked ever so long. Other people get tired of that very thing. We all, we all need to be together. Man is not meant to be in isolation. Two are better than one. And he goes on to say, because they have a good reward for their labor. They enjoy their labor together. They enjoy the blessings of that two rather than just one. For if they notice, he goes on to explain some reasons or illustrations of this. Verse 10, for if they fall. One will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is fallen, who is alone when he falls. Again, spouses, families, friends are all in view here. And he goes on to say, verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Now, I admit being one from the 21st century, I'm like, what does he mean here? Now, it could refer to a husband and wife sharing the bed. But we must remember in the ancient Near Eastern world, people shared the bed in non-intimate ways, did they not? 
it's just a modern thing that we're like, okay, this is a little weird, but we got to get, you know, wrap our heads around the fact that people lived in different times, different eras, different countries, even. And didn't some families just all sleep in the same bed in bygone eras? I mean, that was just different. But one example in the Bible is David, when he's dying, he needs to be warm. And just ha- it just happens to be a beautiful woman. But in any case, the Shunammite girl comes and helps keep him warm uh, to help him there. But so again, there, two is better than one. They stay warm. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. But just again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm who is alone? And then also family and friends protect, protect each other. Verse 12. No one may be overpowered by another. Two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is strength in numbers. A threefold cord is mighty. Strength in numbers. Two is better than one. Three is even better. And so no companion for those who are selfish. But thankfully, God forgives selfish people. Even God gives friends to selfish people. And God himself is our friend, is he not? God who gives kind friends and kind people and kind family and kind spouses in this world. Does he not do such things? Brother, you know what we ought not to do towards our friends or not how we ought not to act or think of our friends? We ought not to think of them with envy or think of them with rivalry. We ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We ought to be happy when our friends get something good that we desire. We want that very thing. It's kind of a tricky, uh, more tension there, isn't there? When someone gets something that you want, you ought to be happy for them. But if you are the one who gets that good thing, ought you not to mourn with those who don't get that good thing? There is much wisdom that we need as we interact with one another, but a lot of forgiveness, a lot of forbearing, a lot of patience with one another. And the sad thing is when we see what other people have, it arouses in us envy. Kidner says to feel oneself a failure is to discover in one's soul the envy that Q detects here. He could, have, he could have written this about that Facebook era. Again, you see what everyone has, you see what everyone's got, and you feel, well, I'm not like them. In its pathetic form of resentments nursed and grievances enjoyed. It's not just that we are not happy for them, but that we're happy when bad things happen to them. We're terrible and fickle human beings. So we ought not to be jealous and envious and engage in rivalry. God gives good companions who are gracious, forgiving, and kind friends, family, spouses. But thankfully, if all of them fade, if all of them fail, we have one who will never leave us. Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you lose all, all your friends are taken away. You have to sit in a tree. I know I mentioned John Patton a lot, but if you sit in that tree like he did when he was running away, do you have such a friend that you can lean upon in such times? Do you have such a friend that you can look to in such suffering and sorrow? There is that companion who will never leave his people. And that is our God. So even though ones may have no companion, or even though the selfish may have no companion, The redeemed in God always have that friend who is near to us. 
So that's no companion for the selfish. We'll look thirdly and finally at no praise for the wise. Verses 13 through 16. The idea here is probably popularity fades. This is a blessing and a curse. And notice this is the fourth better than statement. Verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. Age does not always equal wisdom, does it? We hope it would. We hope that as we grow, we would be open and thoughtful and be able to think and be able to take wisdom and use it rightly, take knowledge and use it rightly, which is what wisdom is, take the truth and use it in proper ways. But that is not always the case. Sometimes we grow old in our ways so much so that we won't hear what anybody else has to say. So what then? Is it better to be a king who is fickle and won't listen? Or is it better to be young and wise? Well, he's saying better poor and wise than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. In the ancient Near Eastern world, if kings were stubborn, if they didn't listen to counsel, it could be their demise, but also the demise of their perhaps soldiers, especially when it comes to leading their countries to battle. If they did not take advice, they might do something stupid. Now, why won't they listen? Rivalry, corruption, and envy. The ability to listen is an important attribute of the wise. Proverbs 2018, 2018. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to turn there and read it myself. But Proverbs 2018. He says, plans are established by counsel. By wise, by wise counsel, they wage war. So a king must listen. A king must discern. That was one of the things Solomon had. He discerned and listened to what people had to say. So wisdom or uh, listening, the ability to listen is an attribute of the wise. The old king will not listen. Then situation occurs where that wise and poor youth becomes king. Verse 14. For he comes out of prison to be king. Although he was born poor in his kingdom. So he rises from the ashes. He rises from his low estate and he becomes king. Now you got the good king, right? You got the wise king, the wise young lad who's able to use knowledge rightly. And they say, I saw all the living, verse 15, who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. That could refer to even another youth. But perhaps even the way the grammar works, it just refers to the one mentioned in verse 13. We'll just say it just mentions the one in verse 13. So that one who was poor, the one who is still wise, now becomes king. You think everybody's happy. He's going to be king forever, right? Nobody's going to remove him, right? He's going to be good. Verse 15, or sorry, verse 16. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. So things going well. Yet, those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Popularity fades. Every leader has a shelf life. You know how encouraging that is for me, that every leader has a shelf life? God raises up kings and brings them down, does he not? Their popularity fades. Even the one who is wise. Another generation comes up. They want a different thing. So they want a different king or a different leader. That's usually how it happens, right? 
<laughs> and then they grow to their senses and realize that was not a good idea. And it just, the cycle keeps go going. What is has been is what will be. What has already been is what will be uh, again. And so every leader has that shelf life, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Isn't that vanity? The one who is wise and good isn't going to fade away. Don't you want the wise one to remain forever? Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. Even the wise and good king's popularity fades, just as the old king fades away as well. No one knows and no one remembers. Now, brethren, thankfully, when everybody forgets you and me, there is one who knows us intimately, isn't there? Psalm 139 is that psalm about God's blessed knowledge for his people. He loves us and knows us even when no one sees his people. I could probably just read the entire psalm for a sermon and just be done because any exposition would probably do it injustice. But verse one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts far off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Goes on to speak about his presence. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. For the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. I'm going to continue. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me. And as yet, there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me. Therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do not hate them, O Lord, who hate you. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. God knows us more than we know ourselves. God knows exactly what we need. And sometimes it might be that suffering or affliction with which we endure that is exactly what we need. Does he not say in Ecclesiastes 3, he has made everything beautiful in its time? If that affliction or sorrow leads you to the rock that is higher than you, do not curse that sorrow that you endure. It leads us closer to our God, a God who knows us, who comforts us, and encourages us every step of the way. 
and will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, that he is truly with us. Remember the words of our Lord. Remember what he said to Saul, the persecutor, before he became Saul, the apostle? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those who are oppressed, those who have no companion, though perhaps for no fault of their own, those whose popularity fades, there is one who is always with us. That is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He loves you and cares for you and is with you every step of the way. And if you're an unbeliever here today, do you have such a friend who can be with you in all your troubles and all your sorrows? For you, it's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find mercy and you shall have this God as your God. But you have such a friend as this, who walks with the oppressed, who walks with the lonely, and who walks with those nobody sees. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God, thank you that our days are fashioned before we are born and that you know each and every one of the events that shall occur, and you've decreed it to come to pass. And we know whatever that is, O oh God, is for our good and for your glory, especially for your people, and only for your people. Thank you, O oh God, for that comfort that we have, knowing that you're the God over all things. Even as we see misery and sin and injustice in this world and oppression that is done to many, as we see Loneliness and anxiety abound as we see uh, many who are idle, many who toil, many who, for their own, uh, for, uh, who struggle. As we see popularity that fades, oh God, where nobody knows and nobody sees, you're the one who knows of us. And thank you that there is forgiveness in you. Forgiveness for our own wicked motivations, for our own idleness, for our own selfishness, oh God, there is forgiveness in you. And thank you that we who were once enemies are made friends through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a friend we truly have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. May we take it to you, O God, may we bring them before you, for you are the God who can handle all our sins and all our griefs. Be with us now as we go into the world. Give us comfort and encouragement by your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. <laughs>